You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. I'm Lucinda Larnock. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, August 4th, 2022. Later in the program, I speak with Dr. Jennifer Droback, Professor of Law at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indiana University about the future of abortion law in Indiana. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, we provide a roundup on all the latest government meetings. That's coming up in your local headlines. On July 25th, at the Ellettsville Town Council meeting, the police and fire pension boards passed unanimously. Next, an Envision Ellettsville representative presented an agreement with TSWDG for an on-call program administration and technical support. When we did the Envision Ellettsville plan, there's a section that deals with, you know, how do we start to implement these things? And so there was a Uh, The group went through a a process of developing different task forces, trying to figure out how to start to advance some of those things, um, which was great. It's it's probably one of the more aggressive types of implementation, which is great to see in the community because it means that there's passionate people that are willing to work to really make things um, come to fruition. So this doesn't become just a document, you know, that sits on a shelf somewhere. The group that put this together, though, as you all know, they're volunteers. And so once they started to think about how this was going to come together, I think somebody probably said, well, now how do we do this? And so what we've done is we've developed um, a mechanism to help organize and to facilitate the ongoing work that these different task force and volunteer groups are going to be doing for the community. So if we could go to the next slide. If you recall at the last meeting, what we introduced to you was the idea that all of this work would be handled in a two process system. So basically the first thing that you did was you you reviewed and you approved a master agreement. So we laid out the terms of the relationship saying, as my company works forward on any of these projects with the town, these are the contractual conditions. There were no dollar amounts assigned, um, none of that. The way that we handle the specific work items is through a series of task orders. So under a master agreement, you could have 500 task orders or you could have zero task orders and nothing ever comes of it. All that master agreement did was define the relationship and you did approve that at the last meeting. And then we began to present some of the task orders at that meeting that we wanted to discuss for implementation. So if we can go to the next slide. And go to the next one. So this is what was presented at the last meeting. We looked at the master agreement. We looked at task order number one. And task order number one is an hourly task order. It is to assist in facilitating these task forces and keeping the Envision Ellettsville implementation process moving. Town manager Mike Farmer said that the cost of the program would be worth it 
to help keep the task forces organized. To have it available is the most important thing to me. Whether we use it, uh, obviously as town manager, um, I'm always interested in not spending our money, but uh, due to the process of growing, money is what we're gonna spend. So I, I think I need help organizing uh, the task force. I know we need to be talking about transportation because five or 10 years from now is gonna be here tomorrow. And um, I think a business task force is indeed, uh, we, we should be organizing that first uh, based on growth possibilities in the future. And maybe we'll miss on some revenue streams, say like a TIF or something like that. And we need to flesh those out, bring them to you so you can yay or nay them and maybe work through the process. But right now we need to be organized and we need to have functional meetings. And I think that's what this is about. The representative explained why they chose the $60,000 cap. The way that we estimated the cap for this was we estimated that all six task forces would be working concurrently for one year. And we did that. Um, <clears throat> the reason that we kind of capped it at that year-long amount was simply you don't want me up here talking to you every $10,000 trying to explain to you that you've got to approve something else. So we were trying to find that spot where you still felt like you were getting um, direct control without this just being spent um, without any oversight, but yet trying to make it so that you didn't have to over to provide that oversight every month. Farmer explained that the city is understaffed to handle what the growing population of Ellettsville needs in terms of town planning. You know, we have two people on staff at planning. Uh, next year we propose four. And so we're understaffed and we're in a high growth rate in, in our town. So uh, this supplements our planning department. And uh, uh, I keep telling the, the department heads at our budget meetings right now, uh, we're a town with a five calf feeder and we have six calves. So I'm not interested in spending money willy nilly. Um, we, we have too many important things to do with it. So I'll be keeping my um, thumb on, you know, what's going on and um, the progress will be reported to the board. And I, I'm, we're just, we're not interested in saying, hey, let's go spend $60,000. Um, like Ron said, it, it, it was a, a limit. I mean, if we can get away with 30000 that's what I want to spend. And that sounds like a lot of money to me. But if what we are going to try to um, succeed in, um, if, if our goals are met, then hopefully anybody that's interested in the town's growth and how we grow and become a complete town, um, I, I hopefully they'll go, boy, that's money well spent. The council approved the agreement between the town of Ellettsville and TSWDG unanimously. The next Ellettsville town council meeting will be held on August 8th. Health Administrator Laurie Kelly gave an update on COVID-19 at the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on July 27th. Uh, so just a few updates. COVID cases have been fluctuating up and down for the past five days. The CDC community level is low. The health department and the public health clinic have free tests 
available. The public health clinic has vaccines for all ages. An important appointment can be made by calling 812-353-3244. Commissioner Penny Githins asked her if there was anything they might need to know about monkeypox since she heard that the United States has the most cases out of any country in the world. Kelly responded saying that the state is prepared for an outbreak. Yes, I can speak to that. So we are working closely with the state. Uh, This includes um, testing and vaccination. We do have procedures in place for those needs. My team is in place and we are ready to respond. Prosecutor and president of the Substance Use Disorder Awareness Commission, Erica Oliphant, gave an annual report on the commissioner's progress. Oliphant said that in 2021, they hosted two lunch and learn educational webinars. Um, First in August 2021, we brought Robert Suarez to give a presentation titled uh, Substance Use in America, Connecting the Dots. Uh, Mr. Suarez is the Director of Outreach and Community Advocacy at North Carolina Urban Survivors Union in Greensboro, North Carolina. And uh, so they, that organization works to build power among low-income people impacted by drug use. So this was an hour-long webinar-style presentation uh, focused on ending the stigma of substance use disorder. In December of 2021, we partnered with the Responding to the Addictions Crisis Grand Challenge and the IU Center for Rural Engagement to present a panel uh, called Substance Use Disorder in Rural Indiana. Uh, We did have a moderator, April Fuller, who is the Executive Director of Research Communications at IU, and featured three panelists, uh, Cass Botts uh, from Healthy Hoosier Communities at IU Center for Rural Engagement, Freya Perry, Associate Vice Provost for Social Science Research at IU, and Andrea D. Genota, who's the director of IUPUI Echo Center and Center for Public Health Practice at IU Richard and Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. So this hour-long webinar-style presentation uh, provided a conversation about the impact of stigma, barriers to treatment, harm reduction strategies, and building resilience in our communities. Uh, so we are continuing that practice in 2022 of hosting lunch and learn opportunities. Oliphant also shared that they wrote a letter to the Bloomington office of the mayor regarding seminary park communications. Uh, in December of 2020, we uh, sent a letter to the mayor's office in response to Mayor John Hamilton's official statement regarding the removal of people um, camping in seminary park. Uh, Essentially, we were taking issue with um, language that implied that syringes are dangerous to those who are using the park. And uh, we asked that the mayor's office more carefully word future communications to avoid contributing to stigmatization of people in our community. Oliphant said that they will host a lunch with Sam Quinn owners on August 30th at 11.30 for anyone interested in learning more. Next, the commissioners approved a grant the health department received from Indiana Department of Health. Health Administration Lori Kelly said the grant is to help lower Indiana's elevated blood lead level threshold. Yes, so the Indiana Department of Health has awarded these funds to the health department. This is to help in lowering Indiana's elevated blood lead level threshold. 
This does include case management and environmental services. Githins commented that the grant will have long-term benefits. Uh, I've, I've been in touch with Ms. Kelly about some of this, that um, this will, it looks like it covers 24 different households, which uh, while they may identify one child as having elevated blood levels or lead levels, um, that this would benefit any other child in that, the home and also benefit any other future family that lives in, the, in that particular housing. So um, I think it's got more than just the immediate effect that would occur in the next two years, but I'm so I'm glad to see this. The commission has approved the grant unanimously. The next Monroe County Commissioners meeting will be held on August 3rd. On Thursday, the Indiana House of Representatives voted to keep exceptions for rape or incest in Senate Bill 1, a near total ban on abortion in Indiana. In today's feature report, I spoke with Dr. Jennifer Drobak, professor of law at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indiana University, about the Senate bill and what the future of abortion law will look like in Indiana. We turn now to that interview. Dr. Jennifer Drobak, professor of law at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indiana University. Welcome to the WFHB Local News. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, the Indiana Republican senators voted 26 to 20 in favor of Senate Bill 1, which would ban all abortions with exceptions for rape, incest, or if the mother's life or health is in danger And the bill is now in the House of Representatives, where it passed out of committee, and it awaits a final vote. So before we dive into that, in your expert legal opinion, what do you make of this Senate Bill 1? Senate Bill 1 is an abortion ban. It's that simple. Uh, It has some exceptions, which will apply in a very small number of cases. Uh, But basically this bill is the regulation uh, by lawmakers of medical care. And it's second guessing doctors and their patients with respect to what medical care can be offered in the state of Indiana. So so one aspect of it is that this is interference in the provision of medical care. And I don't think most lawmakers have licenses to practice law, uh, to, excuse me, to practice medicine. Some do, but very few, if any, in the Indiana legislature. Second, this is bill also would regulate the bodies of people who become pregnant. And it basically forces those people, unless they fall into this, these small number of exceptions, it forces them to engage in pregnancy and labor. And forced labor is commonly known as slavery. And so what you're doing is you're taking away the bodily autonomy and forcing these people 
to engage in labor, literally and figuratively. And so I think we've come to a point in time where we really need to recognize that while this may not equate to a permanent type of slavery, it is forcing people to work without pay against their wills in order to service the will and of other people and, and for a life that is not even recognized or has not been recognized by in many jurisdictions as a human life yet. So that just gets us to the overarching aspects of SB1. And it doesn't even get us into the weeds about this what this law does. But it's also going to have a chilling effect because it presents some confusion about when you can get an abortion, under what circumstances. And therefore, it will have a chilling effect because it will probably end up uh, being the case that doctors can be criminally prosecuted for providing illegal abortions, which means they are going to err on the side of extreme caution to avoid that, or they'll just stop performing abortions in the state of Indiana. And this is going to have a ripple effect beyond medical care, beyond the autonomy of people who become pregnant, and beyond sort of the this notion of how should we regulate abortion, it's also going to have an impact on the economy. Because how many people of childbearing years are going to want to move to Indiana if they know that if they get pregnant here, they probably won't be able to access needed medical care here? Why would you move to a place that doesn't have excellent medical care? And I know that businesses and corporations are probably going to either move their headquarters or considering not consider not having their conventions here because of this type of overly intrusive regulation of people who become pregnant and their families. I really appreciate you walking me through this through a legal lens through an economic lens, through a social lens, you know, I, I really uh, appreciate that. Now, there has been hours of compelling testimony in opposition to this bill over the past week and a half. And, you know, you find that many Indiana residents do not support the abortion ban. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, is there any possible legal recourse from within the state that could prevent this from going into effect in in any kind of way? You know, could a judge shut this down um, or, or what would that look like if there was any legal recourse from within Indiana? Right. Normally, someone can't file a lawsuit unless two things are um, present. First of all, the, the person who files the lawsuit has to have standing, what we call legal standing, means they have to have been injured or represent a group of people who would be injured by a law, and therefore they have standing to sue. So until the law is passed, and, and the controversy has to be what's called ripe, 
ready for litigation. Until the law, whatever it's going to be, gets passed, then you don't have a ripe controversy and you don't really have anyone withstanding because, you know, nothing's been passed yet. So the Indiana legislature freely has some pretty open territory here to go ahead and do what it wants. But I caution lawmakers with the example of Kansas. Kansas had its popular vote. And even though Kansas is perceived as being a very conservative, quote unquote, red state, Kansans came out in record numbers and some didn't vote on any other measure or for any other candidate, but voted to preserve the right to access abortion, medical care in the state. So I think that what happened in Kansas reflects the sentiment of most thinking voters who, who want some regulation of abortion, but not these draconian measures that take control away from people who are pregnant and their doctors. And mm -hmm. so what'll, what'll happen is, is that the law will go into whatever they pass in Indiana, the law will go into effect and then will be challenged. And I can anticipate quite a number of challenges, um, anywhere from um, discrimination to, to, to a 13th Amendment challenge. You know, uh, Michelle Goodwin, Professor Michelle Goodwin had an op-ed uh, recently, I think in the, in the Washington Post. Um, and she also, I made this analogy in last year's uh, family law class, and she wrote about it in her op-ed. She draws on the history of slavery. Now, obviously, this is not the enslavement of women, all women, but she draws on the history of slavery to talk about unpaid servitude and forced labor. And, you know, ironically, we call having a baby labor <laughs> because it is. <laughs> so I anticipate that there will be a number of constitutional suits. Now, the problem is, where do those lawsuits go? Ultimately, they go to a very conservative Supreme Court who has said there's no right of privacy in the Constitution that would guarantee this particular right. So the question then is, is there another part of the Constitution that would somehow dictate against whatever provision the Indiana legislature produces? I mean, I really think that, a lot, that the, the vehemence and the anger and disappointment and hurt that a lot of people feel um, about this overturning of Roe versus Wade really relates back to this notion that they don't have freedom over their own bodies and are and could potentially be forced into into labor um, by the state, and that really raises some dark issues from our historical past that were that were obviously directed at African Americans, but that. Other people can look to that uh, historic tradition and, and begin to get an inkling of, of what that might feel like. And it's not, 
you know, it's, it's scary and it, and it produces anger and fear and um, some really strong emotional reactions. And I think that's what, what we're seeing in some of these protests and what we're going to see after whatever law passes, because if it remains as strict as it looks like it's going to be, it's too onerous. Right. Right. And you touched on uh, a lot of great points there from the 13th Amendment to the right over your own body. Now, you know, with that possible legal recourse, it seems like it it could get a little hairy. And if it goes up to the Supreme Court, as you mentioned, a pretty conservative court that we have right now. Now, um, other ways that maybe the federal government could step in, right? If the federal government were to step in somehow, make abortion legal, whether that's through an executive order or through Congress. What's the likelihood of that playing out? So my first response is unlikely. And here's why. Right now, we've got a divided Senate where we can barely get anything passed. You know, the recent controversies um, involving Senator Manchin and Senator um, Kirsten Cinema, you know, highlight that. So the the idea that we're going to get through legislation guaranteeing the right of abortion, uh, you know, or medical access to to needed medical care, I think is problematic. Second, um, there once upon a time there was a prediction that the midterm elections coming up in November, we could even lose the House and the Senate, in which case there's no way. And in fact. Our former governor and, and former vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, has said that if they do flip the House and the Senate, that he wants legislation, federal legislation, banning abortion everywhere, including in, you know, blue states. So, you know, this is this gets us back to an even more serious question about what can happen on the federal level. And it the response there is people, if you don't want that happening, that worst case scenario, people have to get out and vote. In other words, the people from Kansas showed what the American sentiment is, even among moderates and conservatives. And I I think the Kansas response was, could, could easily be called a moderate response. I mean, how many people don't think you should have access to the medical care that you need? All right. So people need to get out and vote. They need to vote for people, uh, representatives, legislators, senators, uh, who will respect uh, bodily autonomy, who will respect access to medical care, and who will respect the Constitution. Um, Because what the Supreme Court did, I mean, you know, they overruled Roe, but they overruled a half century of precedent. And that's that's really unusual. Uh, and And it's probably a first that in overruling a half century of precedent, they would take away rights rather than give rights. So people need to get out and vote. And then, and if they do, then I think that by making the House uh, and the Senate um, more democratic, uh, more in line with a 
more liberal reading of the Constitution, um, more respectful of bodily autonomy, access to health care, et cetera, then you might have a federal option. Otherwise, what we're going to be seeing is the bluing and redding of America so that the division lines become much more stark. And Indiana is going to fall in, in the swath of red, and people will have to travel. I mean, I, we are lucky to have Illinois so close where abortion is still illegal, where abortion is still legal. Um, I mean, it's legal in Indiana today, um, but if they outlaw it for most people at the point of implantation, um, that's going to take away the right for most people who want to access an abortion. And we can go to Illinois, but a lot of people, um, you know, right now, today, Michigan is having problems. You don't know, you know, a lot of people went to Michigan to access medical care, and they're having trouble there. So, and a lot of people can't afford time off from work, um, airfare, or bus, or car expenses, or childcare while they're gone. Because a lot of people who have abortions have them because they already have as many children as they can afford, and their birth control didn't work, um, or there was some other, you know, occurrence that created created a pregnancy that they couldn't manage. So we're going to be looking to the blue states, and and this rivalry between red and blue, I think, will only get worse. Okay. Well, Dr. Jennifer Drobak, professor of law at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indiana University. Thank you for coming on to the WFHB Local News. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kate. I really appreciate it.